Today's Jewish American community insists that if one is not fully supportive of the actions of the Israeli state, one is not a very good Jew. Well, what's the history behind that? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. The widely held assumption today is that deep, unquestioned, emotional support for the Israeli state is at the root of Jewish identity. Well, as with so many other assumptions, it's not entirely accurate. We've also heard it said that you get four Jews together and you get five different opinions. That is pretty accurate. That's a more accurate assessment. Our guest today writes that for centuries, Jews have been, quote, a diverse people tethered by a common religion and a sorrowful history of displacement, trying to find their place in an often hostile world. For sure, that's true. Jews today suddenly face a new threat and a lot of concerns about the growth of anti-Semitism. I am proud to be a Jewish American. I'll say that right up front. Along with millions of us throughout the international diaspora, I prefer respectful, welcoming inclusion to separateness, loyalty to my country instead of to another foreign nationalism. What am I talking about? It's a discussion, a sometimes heated disagreement among Jews regarding Zionism as opposed to non-Zionism or even anti-Zionism. Though it's not well known, our guest today points out that, quote, Jews have wrangled over Israel since long before the modern state came into existence. Of course, the issue has been raised to new heights since the October 7th Hamas slaughter of innocents and the rather shocking, seemingly indiscriminate collective punishment. Again, these are uh, debatable words. Perhaps 20,000 Palestinians may have been killed. The exceedingly controversial reaction by the Zionist state. Should Jewish Americans be for or against emotional nationalist allegiance to the Israeli state and defend that assault on Gaza and the West Bank as a justifiable defense? Or is there something historically at odds with what it really means to be a Jewish American? Our guest today, Daniel Shulman, in a recent article in the Washington Post, sheds historical light on some really essential, yet largely forgotten history of this heated and divisive issue. His appropriately relevant article is titled, Jewish Leaders a Century Ago Had Complicated Feelings About Israel. That's not all that well known today. There is the assumption, but history often takes on assumptions. It seems that what was a majority opinion among Jews at the time appears to be now a defensive, highly criticized minority today, a minority of which I am part. Dan Shulman is the deputy D.C. bureau chief of Mother Jones. His new book, The Money Kings, the epic story of the Jewish immigrants who transformed Wall Street and shaped modern America, has just recently come out. His article is adapted from that newly published book. Today, we'll look at the more important than ever internal struggle among Jews regarding the Israeli state. Where is our home? Do we need a separate nation? Or should we be at home where we are? What does it mean to be a Jew? What is the Jewish identity? Dan Shulman, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me, Bert. Appreciate it. Well, the vast majority of Americans, including Jewish Americans, are largely in the dark about the real history of how we got where we are today in the Middle East. Common conventional belief is that it all just started in 1948, strictly in reaction to the horrors Mm -hmm. of the Holocaust. 
We may have heard of some key figures in the founding of the Jewish state, but are almost entirely ignorant about the controversy and disagreement among leading Jewish American thinkers as the notion of a Jewish state started taking shape. For example, how many listeners have heard of Jacob Schiff? I don't see a lot of hands raised. Daniel Schulman, please bring us back to their crucial time, which is such a pivotal period in Western history, 1916. Please tell us who Jacob Schiff was and his political influence on the Jewish community of America. Well, Jacob Schiff was perhaps the most uh, prominent and powerful American Jew of his time. He was considered the leader of American Jewry. Um, in addition, he was one of the world's most famous investment bankers. He's, he was a senior partner in a firm called Kuhn Loeb, which is no longer around today. Uh-huh. Um, but during the turn of the century, he was basically J.P. Morgan's main Wall Street rival. Um, and it's, it's really quite surprising that he's not better known than he is today. But in addition to uh, his role in, in American and international finance, he just his legacy is, is profound when it comes to the Jewish people in America. Basically, I say if you if you come from Eastern European or Russian Jewish extraction and your relatives came over at the turn of the century, in many cases, your American story really would not have been possible without Schiff and his contemporaries who um, really pulled out the stops to make sure that immigration was possible from the Pale of Settlement. Um, that fringe of territory on the uh, the western fringe of the Western Empire, where the predominant Jewish population lived during that era, and were under relentless per, uh, persecution. Yes. Um, then is now, you know, there were many efforts to close the doors of immigration, oh. um, and Jacob Schiff and his allies, you know, really uh, used all of their power to um, lobby the government to keep those doors open. And basically, they did so by promising to essentially take care of their own and make sure that um, poor Jewish immigrants who were coming into this country did not become a drag on public resources. Um, So they would go on to build an array of institutions basically that existed to help Jews rapidly acculturate and get jobs, get, get training, um, and there was also a paternalistic aspect of this because, you know, uh, Schiff and his allies were all of uh, German Jewish extraction and and they were sort of dictating how the immigrants that were coming into this country should live. And so that's a little bit of the context of of who Schiff was. He was really considered, you know, no major decision in uh, in world or American Jewry really occurred at that point without you know, consulting Schiff at some point. So he was one of the early guys on on Wall Street. Fascinating. And uh, there is obviously a history, well, I guess not so obviously, of, of uh, Jewish people having um, some skills in terms of uh, the financial uh, realities of the world. In fact, uh, Hindenburg depended on a close Jewish friend to fund his efforts to build up the German Empire prior to World War One, which is the period we're talking about here. And it seems like Schiff's concerns and warnings about a Jewish state reinforced reinforcing a separateness uh, were in a distinct are in a distinct minority now, but things flip around. Was his position? 
not in favor of, of a Jewish state, a separate Jewish state. Was that a minority when he expressed the concern? Was he an outlier as his views are seen today? Please explain. Well, yeah, let me, so just to, just to bring things back a little bit in terms of this notion of, you know, Jews uh, being involved in finance, that's absolutely true. One of the reasons that that occurred over the, the years, and this all sort of ties together, is the fact that, you know, starting thousands of years ago, um, when Jews refused to sort of assimilate to these various empires that were taking over uh, their region, um, they were pushed slowly out of, you know, these societies that they were living in. Uh, they were only able to perform financial roles in many cases because these were not jobs that the Christian or Muslim population would perform things like tax mm -hmm. collecting um, in in the medieval era, um, money lending. This is this is not a, uh, a job that a Christian or Muslim would perform because they uh, <clears throat> did not believe in usury or you know the charging of interest right. on loans and things like that. So so gradually, you know, that's one of the reasons that you see um, Jews involved in finance. Um, but so you know, basically. Jews have been pushed out of many of the countries that they lived in historically. You know, yeah. they were expelled from they were expelled from Spain. They were expelled from England. They were expelled from France. Um, and at the time during Schiff's era, there was a huge migration of Jews, starting uh, with German Jews who came over uh, largely in the mid 1800s. And that was as a result of revolutions that were occurring throughout Europe and uh -huh. in, in the German states during that time. Now, uh, the Jews of that era who had been essentially displaced in Germany, they had no civil rights. Um, they couldn't, in many cases, you couldn't own property. Um, and there were quotas effectively on how many Jews could live in various towns. Um, they had no political representation. Um, so when Jews came, started to come to the United States in the in the mid 1800s, this was just a mecca for them. While anti-Semitism did exist, it did not prevent them from freely worshiping, um, pursuing the professions that they wanted to pursue. You know, pursuing the American dream, really. Uh -huh. um, and so that is why when uh, that is why when Zionism began to take hold in the early part of the 20th century that American Jewish leaders were kind of aghast at this because they they considered America to be their Zion, to be their refuge. Um, and they worried about the perceptions that would be created by the establishment of a separate Jewish state. Would this cause anti-Semitism? Would this lead to, would this lend credence to this age-old canard that Jews have dual loyalties, uh -huh. that they cannot be true or trustworthy citizens. So that is why, um, you know, the, the prospect of Zionism was alarming to people such as Jacob Schiff and why, you know, for many American Jews, not just him during that era, um, they were, you know, opposed to Zionism because, you know, the United States was their home. Boy, that's so different from what's going on now. As, as I said in the uh, introduction, it, uh, most people seem to assume that Jewish identity means steadfast, full-throated support for 
the state of Israel as being a home for the Jews. And uh, that wasn't the case. And I did want to add, aside from being able to do finance work when others were not allowed to, not permitted to, their religion didn't allow them to, there's a lot of Jewish doctors out there and some really good ones. And part of the reason is the other religions forbade uh, people from uh, working with the body, and only Jews could do that. And so there are some good effects from from some of the horrible uh, things that, that happened and the repression that happened. But uh, here we have uh, where we are today. And so one of the—1916, it's, it's not— that that period during the First World War is not all that well known today, but I think it's starting to be more well known because so many changes, so many important things in history happened in that period. One of the lesser known uglinesses to erupt during America's eventual involvement in that First World War was something called nativism. Not at all like the current campaign remarks of one orange person, Donald Trump, who keeps repeating the Hitlerian insistence that immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of Americans. The then-President Woodrow Wilson ratcheted up a new hatred. He was uh, elected in 1912, ratcheted up hatred of new immigrants, which often resulted in governmental repression and vigilante violence. As you say in your article, given that we are diverse people tethered by a common religion and a sorrowful history of displacement, trying to find their place, our place, in an often hostile world, in, in 1924, after a lot of this repression and ugliness, there was a new immigration law blocking immigration by Jews and others. And World War I res- radically reshaped Jewish attitudes towards Zionism. Ha! Huh. Let's let's get into that. What would Schiff have had to say about the answer to the question of how to find our place? What about that 1924 immigration law and the effect on Jewish attitudes towards Zionism? It's I mean it's very interesting, and I've thought about this a lot. You know, Schiff Schiff died in 1920, um, so you know his opposition to Zionism was sort of based on the realities then, and as you point out they very dramatically started to change in the post-World War I era, starting with the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, as you know, in 1924, which all but halted immigration, not just of Jews, but of many, um, many immigrants, except for those, um, you know, uh, of Nordic extraction, basically. And this was an explicitly racist law um, designed to prevent immigrants from essentially um, polluting the Anglo-Saxon pedigree of, of the country. Um, now, Schiff, as I explained earlier, had spent so much of his life trying to allow Jews— at, well, first he, first he tried to end repression in the Russian, within the Russian Empire. And when that did not work, um, he did all he could to allow, and, uh, to allow Jewish immigration— uh, to to the United States, so he would have been horrified first by you know the passage of of this law, and I'm sure had he been alive, he would have fought tooth and nail against it. Um, and then, of course, comes World War One, and and this was you know this sort of six million murdered Jews. This makes the argument that the Zionists had been making for decades at this point 
that Jews required a homeland where they could control their own destiny, their own immigration policy and their own defense. And, and you know, that is why these two sort of events were so pivotal, pivotal in changing the debate around Zionism, especially within the Jewish community, but not just within the Jewish community. All right. Wilson certainly had his uh, very strong movement against what he called hyphenated Americans when it had to be fully American. And uh, that was that was a big deal. And a lot of people got really badly hurt at that time. And I, I hesitate to admit that he was a Democrat, but boy, he did some bad things. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Daniel Shulman who has written a, uh, a recent article in the Washington Post titled Jewish Leaders a Century Ago Had Complicated Feelings About Israel. And this is uh, from his new book, The Money Kings, the epic story of the Jewish immigrants who transformed Wall Street and shaped modern America. It, let me just stop here for a sec. How did you come to write this book? It didn't suddenly appear uh, as a result of October 7th, I'm sure. You know, this is, I've been working on this book for, uh, I've been at work, I've, I've on this book for almost nine years, actually, um, since the release of my last book, which was called Sons of Wichita, which came out in 2014, and it was a biography of the Koch family. Um, so essentially, the, it was a little bit of a roundabout way that I ended up in this, in, in, on this topic. I was I was interested in World War One, um, as you mentioned, so much of the modern world flowed from that time period. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I was researching was that this wave of anarchist uh, bombings in this country, you know, that was tar targeting uh, many of the major capitalists of that era, including um, J.P. Morgan Jr. Um, and it just culminated in 1920 with the bombing of Wall Street. Um, so as I was researching this topic, um, I came across Schiff's name as the recipients of one of these letter bombs. And I. Oh, wow. I just I just became fascinated by him. And I realized, you know, there had never been a major biography of Schiff before. And I I was sort of startled by that, because um, as I would come to find out in my research, he's you know, he's not just one of the most pivotal figures in American Jewish history. He's one of the most pivotal figures in modern American history, period. Mm. Um, I, I, I think he's I, I think in many ways he's more significant than J.P. Morgan. Um, not because not not only his role in finance, but as I said, you know, if you were a member of the American Jewish community today, this exists in part because of Schiff's leadership and philanthropy. Um, and there there are certainly things to criticize about that, but um, that's just that's just uh, we're sort of still living in the world that you know Schiff helped. You know, from there. I sort of came to realize that my own family story was sort of when I come comes back to this idea of we're sort of all as Jews tethered together in some odd way. My dad's parents grew up. Uh, my my dad's parents were immigrants from from that uh, from. In fact, my grandmother didn't really know where she was from. She would say Poland sometimes, Austria uh -huh. sometimes, um, and this is a common story with you know uh, among Jewish people who are from that part of the world and. You know, my grandfather was from present day Ukraine, um, sort of the Odessa region. They both immigrated in the early part of the 19th century. Um, and my dad grew up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. 
Um, and they were poor, you know, poor Jewish immigrant family. Um, but I came to realize that, you know, their story and Schiff's were part of the same story. Um, Schiff made it possible in some ways for immigrants such as them, not only to come to the United States, but to thrive here. Um, and so, and so basically that's a bit of a long-winded explanation for how I came upon the story, but, you know, Schiff's contemporaries were, you know, Goldman and Sachs, the Lehman brothers, um, some of the major financiers of that era. But what's interesting about them is not just their role in finance, and that's fascinating enough, mm. but it's interesting the role they played in the, you know, in the Jewish community and in, and in Jewish philanthropy during that era and, and during that era and in um, in advocacy on issues such as immigration. And it's I do find it interesting in, in reading what what you've written uh, about uh, uh, German Jews versus uh, uh, the Jews from where my ancestors came from, which is one of the uh, countries, I guess it was. It wasn't even a country. It was a nation, a subnation, Galicia, which is now yeah. part of I'm not even sure where Ukraine or Poland, something like that. But there was a split. There was a difference between, not a split per se, but there was some some differences among uh, America, Jewish Americans. Uh, my my father would tell me about. Uh, he he didn't have great feelings toward the German uh, Jewish Americans. I, I will say that uh, you know because he he was born in 1914, and uh, he, he he thought that they were kind of elitist. And uh, th there was a real difference. But, and yet, as you point out, uh, the Germans, yeah, they considered themselves elite, but how, what did they do with regard to uh, what you call a dizzying network of social welfare organizations? Uh, they, I guess the German elite largely functioned that. Was, was it not just out of the goodness of their hearts, but also in the self-interest of those German elites? Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question because there were there were there were definitely both sides of this. And you know, the German Jews were uh they were wealthy, they were highly assimilated, and yes, they, you know, they were very uh they were very elitist. Um and they really shared very little in common with the Eastern European and Russian immigrants that were coming over other than uh other than their religion. But uh the German Jews realized you know, then it's now that Jews were often painted with the same brush. Uh -huh, yes. So, so, so basically, in order to preserve very hard fought, very tenuous and fragile um, place in the American social hi hierarchy. Now, recall people like Schiff and you know the Lehmans and the and the Goldmans and the Saxes. They were at the very top of the heap financially. They had uh, created these. Uh, very successful um, investment banks um, in order to preserve. And, and some of these families were also, you know, in, had started businesses uh, such as Macy's and, mm. and things of that nature. They were at the, they, they were part of the business elite, you know, to preserve their place in the American social hierarchy. It was very important to the German Jews that they uplift uh, the whole of the Jewish people and that um, these immigrants would not, um, create a negative image of all Jews uh -huh. in the United States. So that that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why, in addition to, you know, genuine humanitarian concerns 
about the pogroms and mob violence that was playing out in the Russian Empire in the late 1880s. That, that was what was causing wave upon wave of Im- immigrants to come to this to this country. <clears throat> they established just in a, you know hospitals, schools, job training centers. Um, it really, you know, uh, you know, organizations such as the Henry Street Settlement House in New York, which was sort of at that time, you know, sort of a visiting nurse service uh, on the on the Lower East Side. Um, many of the organizations that were created uh, at that time remarkably exist today. You know, it, um, the American Jewish Committee was formed then, the Joint Distribution Committee, um, Montefiore Hospital, which which ship was uh, which which ship was a founder of. Um, you know, a lot of these institutions were created in that era and they were all involved in various pieces of Jewish philanthropy and advocacy, all of it designed at, you know, really aiding, um, Jewish immigrate, Jewish immigrants Mm -hmm. within, 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 within this country. Um, so yes, it was selfless. There was of course some self-interest also in, you know, in this philanthropy targeted at Jewish immigrants. And certainly there was the concern at that time about uh, immigrants in general, Eastern European immigrants and uh, sometimes called swarthy immigrants. Uh, and, you know, there were a lot of, frankly, anarchists and uh, people of a, of a political persuasion that wasn't real popular with a lot of people in the United States. And uh, so it, it to, to address that seems to make a lot of sense. And there was underneath this, you know, there's this assumption and understanding that Jacob Schiff and the others in this elite had the freedom to do these things, to create this uh, dizzying network of social welfare organizations. And so how did that, I wonder how it reflected on, on Schiff's attitude toward America being the Zion, a promised land. Well, I think that, you know, this was all part of the same goal. You know, he he saw he wanted America to remain open as a refuge for Jews throughout the world. You know, keep in mind, you know, he was raised uh, in a Germany in which, you know, Jews really did not possess many freedoms. And, you know, this is this is what propels that, you know, the Jews were living at that at that time, their, their standing in the world was so, you know, where would they go? Where could they go? Um, there really weren't many places. So the United States was just a revelation. And again, there was anti-Semitism within the United States. Uh, there certainly was, but it was not of the same, you know, of, of the same virulence that existed in Europe, you know, in the 1800s, Jews in this country were viewed much more as a curiosity than anything else. And that's because there weren't many. Um, so you would encounter a Jew and, and it would be like, oh, well, that's that's interesting. Um, and as but but as as more and more Jewish immigrants came to this country, um, as the German Jewish elite feared, you know, they did import some of these anarchism. You know, uh-huh, there were sure. there were problems of crime. Um, you know, there was a remarkable episode where uh, there was a lot of crime on the Lower East Side. And this was creating negative uh, negative stereotypes about Jews in New York. And so, 
you know, as part of their philanthropic endeavors, uh-huh. the German Jewish elite actually, you know, created an effort to police crime, prostitution, drug peddling on the Lower East Side. They partnered with um, the New York City police. They hired mm. detectives of their own. They they assembled these amazing dossiers about, you know, the Jewish gangsters of those of, of that era. Uh, and they drove them out of the Lower East Side um, because of their concerns about image. Um, so, I mean, it was just a fascinating, uh, just just a fascinating time period to see this group of people trying to find their find their way in this world. And, and that sort of brings us back to this concept of Zionism, because, you know, among these uh, ideologies that were sort of being imported from Europe was was Zionism and where Schiff had once presided over a Jewish community that was, you know, more or less <laughs> listened to what he and other elites had to say um, as, you know, socialists came into the mix, as Zionists came into the mix. You had all of these factions within the American Jewish community, and it was unruly. And, you know, suddenly Schiff found himself under attack, including by, uh, including by the Zionists of that era, who really took exception with his very vocal uh, denunciations of, of their cause. I mean, he really, uh, he, 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 the term uh, anti-Zionist wasn't used in that era, but that would have you know, summed up Schiff's position during, especially during that era. I think, you know, later the term non-Zionist would be, would be used, but, but, you know, Schiff was extremely concerned um, as were others about, uh, you know, the Zionist activists within, within the Jewish community and this sort of push and pull between whether America would be the Jewish refuge or whether Jews would you know, would would have to form their own uh, their own state, their own nation to escape the anti-Semitism that had, you know, followed them for centuries upon centuries. And we have seen the at least the specter of a rise of anti-Semitism. People these days often confuse non-Zionism. Uh, and questioning the Jew- the uh, Israeli state's uh, war in Gaza with uh, with anti-Semitism, that and it's it's not the case. But now it's it's a minority of people. It seems to me, of a minority of Jewish Americans, who have been speaking out about the uh, the war in Gaza and uh, in the West Bank and. And it's it's it seems like most people, non-Jews, expect expect all Jews to be fully in support of of Zionism, of uh, that Israel is the Jewish state. And people, I think, are confused that how can you call yourself Jewish if you don't, you know, support one hundred percent everything that the uh, Israeli government is is doing now? And that was really different back then. It was was Schiff. And it was his uh, belief that uh, America was the Zion. Was that the majority at the time? I mean, it's, it's, it seems like a minority now. 
But what about the majority minority positions then? Uh, certainly among the assimilated American Jews of that era, um, the opposition to Zionism was, you know, was the norm. Um, now, uh, you know, keep in mind, this is this is pre um, the 1924 Immigration Act. This is pre World War Two, which just changed the game yes. uh, entirely a little bit. But um, <laughs> but. But yes, they, you know, they, you know, Zionism really um, started out as a pretty wild eyed idea. Um, no one really thought that it was going to, this movement was going to succeed. Um, and this is sort of up into like, uh, you know, up into the beginnings of World War One. Um, now, it was only really with the Balfour Declaration in 1970. 1917, excuse me, which voiced uh, British support for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, mm -hmm. that this, this, this becomes, this starts to become more of a reality. Um, and I should say that, like, even at that, even at this time, there were Jews living in that part of the world. There were, you know, some 20, 24,000 Jews, but the, the um, but this declaration really starts to get momentum to the Zionist cause. And the Balfour Declaration uh, was uh, something that, that the British government did, and it was that they had their own reasons for, for doing that. Of course, they were a formerly Great Britain, not so great anymore, but they you know, were a very uh, imperial uh, country at the time. Uh, but so the Balfour Declaration, who was Balfour and... How did how did that mark a foundational shift in the debate over Zionism? Well, so uh, Balfour was Arthur Balfour, who was the British Foreign Secretary, and he made this declaration in a November second, nineteen seventeen letter to uh, Lord Walter Lionel Rothschild, who was a member of the famous banking family, and he was a leader of um, British Jewry. He was kind mm -hmm. of a, a, an a, sort of an equivalent figure to. Uh, to shift in the in the United States, and really, the Balfour de Declaration is 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 fairly you know short. It basically just says the British government supports the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Um, the goal of the the of the declaration, and this is sort of interesting, was to sort of solidify um, Jewish support around the world for the Allied cause. Um, and that, that was one of the motivations for this. Um, the following month after the Balfour Declaration um, was delivered to uh, Lord Rothschild, the British expeditionary forces captured Jerusalem, um, which was then part of the domain of the Ottoman Empire. Right. Um, so, you know, the international backing for a Jewish homeland in um in Palestine, British backing, um, that, that sort of makes these wild aspirations of the Zionist movement, you know, this suddenly thinks this is potentially a reality. Um, you know, in the, and in the wake of the Balfour Declaration, it was interesting, even Schiff begins to shift his views on Zionism. Huh. And in, in, the, in the waning years of his life, he sort of entered into this complicated dance with Zionist leaders where he, you know, was basically negotiating uh, whether he would join, officially join the, the Zionist cause. 
the Zionist organization, which would have been a major coup for the Zionists because of who Schiff was during that era. Um, in the end, as he would say, he remained on the threshold. And the issue that kept him on the threshold was this idea of a Jewish political an entity, a Jewish state. He came to believe in, uh, in the settlement of Palestine by Jews um, for cultural and religious purposes. But he really drew a line at this idea that there should be a separate Jewish nation um, because he thought it would, it, it could stir up anti-Semitism. And as I mentioned earlier, that it could, you know, lead to, you know, uh, lead to, you know, undergirding these stereotypes about Jewish separatism uh-huh. and about a supposed Jew- Jewish dual loyalties. So he never, he never ended up joining uh, the Zionist cause and who knows what would have occurred uh, had he been alive to see, you know, what starts to occur in the world in the in the decades after his death. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking about uh, the real history of, of Zionism and Jacob Schiff in particular. Our guest today is Daniel Schulman, who's uh, written a, a new book. Uh, that is titled uh, The Money Kings, the epic story of Jewish immigrants who transformed Wall Street and shaped modern America. And he's got an article in the Washington Post that's taken from that. Uh, and the title of that article is Jewish leaders a century ago had complicated feelings about Israel. And we're finding that out. And a name that's probably better known than Jacob Schiff was Theodore Herzl. Tell us a bit about him and his role in promoting a separate Jewish state and which side of the Jewish divide between, you know, the German elite and the Eastern Europeans, which, which side was he on? And how did that aspect impact the growth of Zionism? Well, you know, Herzl was an Austro-Hungarian journalist and activist who uh, founded the Zionist organization and pressed for the creation of a Jewish state. Um, in 1896, Herzl published the pamphlet uh, Der Judenstaat, the Jew or the Jewish state. Um, which articulated his views on the establishment of a Jewish nation. And he, you know, differed with uh, American Jewish leader, leaders, um, you know, fundamentally over this issue of anti-Semitism. He believed that anti-Semitism would follow Jews wherever they went. It would not be, it could not be overcome. Um, and so Jews required their own, you know, their own refuge. Um his pamphlet, his 1896 pamphlet, and, and sort of the backdrop in Europe of this is the Dreyfus Affair, which was a notorious anti-Semitic episode where a French, um, a French military officer was railroaded for, for treason. And this just caused a huge amount of um, anti-Semitism in, in France. Um, so this is sort of the backdrop of this. That occurred in 1894. Herzl is writing uh, Der Judenstadt in, in 1896. Um, so he was really, um, he was really the intellectual, you know, forefather of Zionism. And, you know, his ideas very quickly start to gain currency around the world as a solution to basically the same problem that Schiff and his allies were facing, which was uh, the conditions in the Russian empire, where, Jews were being targeted with mob violence, where they were being persecuted, where this was causing 
wave upon wave of immigration out of the out of the pale of settlement. So they were really, you know, on two opposite sides uh, of this issue. Um, now, Herzl would go, Herzl died in 1904, long before, you know, the Balfour Declaration, and of course, before the establishment of, of Israel, but he's sort of, you know, seen as, as one of the, 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 the visionaries of the eventual Jewish state. For sure. And uh, at some point, it seems like that uh, Schiff uh, perceived uh, this new Zionism as a, this new movement as, as a threat. Why did, before he, you know, adjusted his views, why did this alarm Schiff? What was he so concerned about? Why did he see it as a threat? In what way? Well, uh, Jewish politics, uh, internal politics at that time, you know, were becoming increasingly uh, fractured, fractured and factionalized. Um, and it just altogether unruly. Um, and, you know, it, it, it simply comes back to this idea uh, that, you know, it was a threat because he believed that, it could, that, that the establishment of a Jewish state would lead to more anti-Semitism and, uh, and, and lead to people believing this age-old myth that Jews had dual loyalties and could not be trusted as, as trustworthy citizens wherever they live. That's really the, that's really the root of it. That seems to be the case now. I, I must say that uh, people are are. It, it's raising the anti-Semitism wasn't really out in the open so much back when I was growing up, but it is more so now. And I think some of it is because of uh, what uh, the state of Israel is doing here. And it's it's the concern. You know, is it defensive what they're doing in Gaza? Uh, but it's a, it's a separate state, and uh, we've had this long relationship. We, the United States, had this long relationship with, with Israel as allegedly the only democracy in the Middle East. And uh, now, with, with this going on, it seems to have ratcheted up uh, anti-Semitism, I, I, I will say. And, and so it seems like Schiff and American Jewish leaders way back then started to view the movement as as a threat to them and uh like one can see why and going back to something you said earlier uh that Schiff came to support Jewish settlement in Palestine for cultural and religious purposes but he could not abide Jewish statehood go into that a little bit please please explain the difference and how significant it was and remains well, I mean, you know, as we discussed at that time, there were Jews who were living in uh, in the land of Palestine in their in the cultural and, and religious cradle of you know Judaism. Israel has always had a place um, within the Jewish faith, um, and there's that's always been a tie for the Jewish people. Um, you know, it's the difference. The difference is, you know, he, they did not. He did not believe that there should be a political entity uh -huh. created, a Jewish nation. Um, you know, he believed that Jews. Uh, you know, and the and the and the question of how this place would be governed, of course, was you know open ended. Um, oh, but he believed. But but you know, um, uh, but he believed that there should not be. A Jewish nation, and that if you know Jews wanted to 
create cultural and religious institutions there and, and settle in Palestine. Um, he supported that. Seems like I would be, not that it matters particularly, but I would be in agreement with that position. Uh, and one other thing I, I had not heard of, I, I love to learn from history. There's there's so much that I don't know. I had never heard of the British Peel Commission, P-E-E-L, the Peel Commission. What was that? What was its goal and how did it come about? Well, the Peel Commission was also known as the Palestine Royal Commission. It was headed by a British official and former member of parliament, Lord Peel. Um, and it was created in 1936 to probe the causes of unrest in Palestine, including uh, a recent Arab uprising. The commission ended up proposing a plan to partition Israel into uh, to Palestine into two separate Jewish and Arab territories. Mm. Um, so this is sort of the first partition plan. Um, and this plan was rejected by by, you know, the Arab representatives. Um, and it was fiercely debated among among the Jews of that era for for a number of reasons. And, and the British at that time just ended up, you know, thinking that this just was not uh, a plausible plan and, and could not be you know, put into effect. Um, but it's interesting from the perspective that this was one of the this was the first kind of official uh, partition plan, the second being uh, uh, right before uh, the 1848 uh, by the United Nations in, in uh, 1947. Yeah, it's been going on a long time. It didn't all just suddenly spring up in 1948. And as you mentioned, Schiff died in 1920. Leadership went to his son, son-in-law, Felix Warburg. And as you tell it, he went to a meeting of the Jewish Council for Palestine in Zurich, in Switzerland. What was that council's and his goal? And what did he fear, which seems to have come true? Well, so... You know, this was at a time when the Peel Commission recommendations had come out. So, like the main the the main topic of discussion was this partition plan and whether uh, Jews should support it. The Jewish Council of Palestine was was you know, basically the executive council representing the Jewish community within Palestine under the British mandate, um, and its goal was to really be this, the decision making authority. Um, you know, the committee included. Um, including non-Zionists, people like, you know, who had a similar ideology to Schiff, who, you know, supported um, causes in Palestine, but they did not support the creation of a Jewish state. Um, and his son-in-law, Felix Warburg, who was sort of assumed his Schiff's philanthropic mantle, mm -hmm. um, was among those. He was, you know, he was a non-Zionist and he went to Zurich you know, he happened to be quite ill at the time, and uh, he would die, in fact, two months after the fact. Um, but he just felt it was so important to be there at that moment. Um, and he advanced a resolution which basically said they should not accept the partition plan. Um, he, he felt it was extremely important that they try to work out some arrangement where uh, – Jews and Arabs could live peace peaceably um, within the same country. He just um, he just mm -hmm. thought that any other solution to this problem would lead to you know more violence, or as he put it, you know during that era that that it would just the it would just turn into a shooting gallery. There was already a lot of violence that was playing out um, within within Palestine, and you know of course in some ways what he 
you know, his views were uh, somewhat prophetic. Of course, he did die before World War II and the Holocaust, which again dramatically changed, um, which really dramatically changed things in terms of Zionism, um, and created the, the 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 sort of impetus for the uh, for for the creation of Israel. Absolutely. It, it certainly came out of that, and uh, something had to be done, that's for sure. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Daniel Schulman, who uh, writes an article in the Washington Post, and he's with the uh, Mother Jones magazine, and he's he's written an article called uh, Jewish Leaders a Century Ago Had Complicated Feelings About Israel, and it's from... His book, The Money Kings, The Epic Story of Jewish Immigrants Who Transformed Wall Street and Shaped Modern America. And here we are, uh, basically 2024, and things are a little bit different these days. Um, as, as you write, and this is, Schiff had some interesting uh, premonitions, I suppose. I mean, he was ahead of his time. As you say, as Schiff and many American Jews realized in the early 1900s, the world would not distinguish between the inhabitants of a Jewish state and the Jewish people in general. Tell us about the effects of that you see today. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that, you know, it was something that they realized at the time in terms of, you know, just how Jewish immigrants were viewed in New York um, and elsewhere. This was just, it was just obvious to them that, that Jews were painted by the same brush, no matter whether they were from Frankfurt, Germany, and grew up in you know wealthy households such as Jacob Shifted, or whether they were born in you know a shtetl in uh -huh. uh, within <laughs> within the 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 pale of settlement. So um, yes, I mean I think what's been interesting is this explosion of anti-Semitism, and people you know seem seem hard pressed to distinguish between Jews. And the Jewish state of, of mm -hmm. Israel, mm -hmm. um, you know, what occurs in Gaza can have ramifications in New York or Indianapolis or Los Angeles. Um, so, you know, in in that way, I think, you know, Schiff and Warburg did foresee something fundamental. Um, of course, you could also say that the Zionists also uh, saw something fundamental, which was that, you know, Jews required some type of refuge. Um, because, you know, if you go back to the 1920s and the Johnson-Reed Act that barred Jewish immigration to the United States, um, and what happened during the World War II era, where Jews were unaided, they had no place right, to go. Right. Um, it's, you know, it, so, so this ended up making the Zionist, uh, the Zionist case, but it, but it's, it is very true that, um, no matter whether you've stepped foot in Israel, um, mm -hmm. if you are a Jew, um, you unfortunately are, you know, tethered to Israel, um, in the minds of people that are unable to distinguish between uh, the Jewish people and the Jewish state. And there, there really is. It's important to, to look at that, I think, and that's one of the reasons for doing this show. And people have said, well, you know, other oppressed groups have a nation state of their own. 
I mean, Armenia, the Armenians were terribly repressed, as you know, during the First World War. There's the Kurdish people, for example. I support a Kurdish state between uh, Iraq and, uh, and Syria. If I question the need for a nation state serving Jews over all others, if they make laws which establish Jewish supremacy, am I not acknowledging that I am less of a Jew? I mean, if I support... Uh, you know, an, an Armenian state and a Kurdish state, why shouldn't there be a Jewish state? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, and, and this comes back to the issue of uh, anti-Semitism and, and anti-Zionism being sometimes conflated. Sometimes uh, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but yes. uh, it's, it is also possible to um, critique the policies of a country without being um, anti-Semitic. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think, I mean, <clears throat> you know, as, as certainly uh, as an American Jew who is directly affected by the policies of Israel, as we've seen because of, uh, you know, anti-Semitism is not really distinguishing at this point, right? Yes. Um, uh, so, you know, I think uh, every Jew, whether you're from, whether you live in Israel uh, or whether you live in the United States, has uh, the right to criticize the the policies of uh, of a nation that is, you know, acting in their name in many cases. Yes, and and you assert that quote like the paradigm altering world wars, the Hamas Israeli conflict has formed a new inflection point for Zionism. Say more about that, please. Well, just, I, you know, certainly I'm, I'm 45 years old. Um, I've never witnessed the explosion of anti-Semitism. I have never seen anti-Semitism yeah. like this in my lifetime. Um, yeah. And and which is uh, which is which is quite shocking. Um, I think that this conflict um, has you know, for, has refocused attention on um, on the plight of the Palestinian people and on, you know, on human rights abuses and on the roots of extremism. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's a paradigm um, altering moment. We, we've seen these, you know, protests um, around the world. Um, I don't think this is anything that is going away um, anytime soon. I think, you know, uh, I think, you know, everybody believes that some solution to this crisis needs to be reached. Um, I'm, you know, I don't propose to have that solution, unfortunately. I mean, I think, (laughs) unfortunately, um, but I, I think everyone believes that the status quo can't, continue to hold um people you know there are various things can be true it can be true that hamas is using civilians as human shields in gaza it can be true that they're operating out of hospitals um but the world at this point is not going to accept um the bombing of civilians to go on you know as it has been, um, it is, you know, uh, it is really fueling 
a lot of anti-Semitism around the country. Now, I don't want to now I'm not blaming Israel. I'm certainly not blaming Israel for the explosion of anti-Semitism, because from my view, you know, a lot of this had been bubbling under the surface and Uh seemed like it was just waiting to leap out, Um, uh, you know, even after, you know, you know, moments after Hamas uh, invaded Israel and massacred civilians there, people were ready to denounce Israel. Mm. Um, So, you know, so I'm not, I I don't want to suggest that Israel is causing anti-Semitism, you know, Um, but, but, you know, what's going on in Gaza is, is certainly not helping the cause (laughs) of Jews uh, throughout the world. I mean, I certainly believe that Israel has the right to, um, has the right to defend itself, but you know, it, it, it's not this. What's what's going on in Gaza is just not something that people around the world are are, are going to accept. And it is important, in my belief, that people separate and and recognize that there is this distinction between uh, a Zionist and American Jews. There's 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 a big difference, and they're, and they're not to one and the same. And it's a difficult place to be, but it's important to look at the history, which is what we've been doing today. And I really appreciate you being there. The book is The Money Kings, the epic story of the Jewish immigrants who transform Wall Street and shape modern America. And from that, as a recent article in the Washington Post, uh, Daniel Schulman, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks, Bert. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.